I just wanna back up for one moment and take like a 30,000 foot view of mainly the Old Testament. And I'll explain it like this. So in 2007, uh, I hiked up Mount Shasta. And I did it in a way that probably I would not repeat. Um, I was following my fearless leader, Mark Scudstat, who had done it before. I had not done it. So Mark's like, no, you don't need to, most people, they climb up and they camp at Lake Helen overnight at like 10,000 feet. And then you do the last 4,000 feet the next day. Mark's like, nah, we don't need to do that. We'll go at 10 at night, hike all night long, crest at seven o'clock in the morning, and then come on down. And that way you don't have to carry stuff up. I'm like, that's brilliant. Okay, yeah. So we drive down, leave here like at six o'clock or seven o'clock. And then uh, he goes, we have to stop at the Black Bear Diner. So at like nine o'clock at night, we stop at the Black Bear Diner. And I'm like, what should we eat? You know, we're, we're mountaineers now. We're hiking up Mount Shasta. What should we eat? He's like a scramble. So I eat this massive scramble. I burped that up for the next 24 hours. I'm like, that's not mountaineering food. So when we were done with that, Mark's like, we should have a blizzard. They make the best milkshakes here. Let's get a milkshake. I'm like, I don't think that's mountaineering food. I really don't think that's like what people are doing at Everest. So, but I just followed his lead. So we hike up there and um, it worked. Uh, we made it up to the top. Uh, myself, Sean Logue, Wade Comerford, and Jason Folkstad. And we ended up getting to the top about seven o'clock in the morning. It was just brilliant, beautiful. Uh, I don't know if it was because I hadn't slept in 26 hours at that point and I was exhausted or high elevation or just the awe of it up there. I just started bawling. Just, I just started crying. So we're hiking down, no one else noticed this. So we're hiking down, you start meeting people that are coming up. And, and I met this one crew, they're like, how was it, how was it? I go, man, I was just so overwhelmed. I just started crying. And Joseph, Jason Folkstadt looks at me and goes, me too, but I wasn't gonna tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> The hardest part about hiking Mount Shasta was this. There's this area, it's called Misery Ridge, I think. And it's this place where you look and you think, because I'd never done it before, that's the top. And you finally hike up and you make it to the top. And guess what? It's not the top. There's another ridge. You're like, that's the top. And then you, and it's hard. You get above like 12,000 feet. It feels like someone just put cement shoes on you. It's like every foot is like, oh. So you're like, oh, that's the top. And then you get to the top of that one. And guess what you see? another top. And it just, it does this. It, it is, that's the worst part about it. It's just like, are you kidding me? How many of these false peaks can there be? That's the Bible. What? What we're seeing in Genesis, and I hope you're grabbing this, is we keep seeing these false peaks. So God, we know he wants to save humanity. He wants to redeem us from our sin what happened in Genesis three. And he grabs this guy named Abraham. And we kind of think Abraham's it, he's the peak. And then we start to travel along with Abraham for a while. And what do we realize really quickly? Oh, he's not so good after all. He kind of lies and cheats and he's not so good after all. But then he has this son of promise. The son of promise is Isaac. Okay, he's gonna be the one. And then what do we find out about Isaac? He's not that good of a dad. He lies about his wife as well. He plays favorites with his boys. You're like, oh, you're not very good either. And then, oh, it's gonna be Jacob. And then we follow Jacob for a little while and it doesn't take long at all for Jacob. You're like, oh, it's not Jacob, right? 
And then he's going to have these 12 boys. And we're going to see his 12 boys. Oh, they're worse. So it's like you get your hope up for this. Oh, that's not it. You get your hope up and oh, that's not it. And it happens over and over and over. So what we find is this. The carriers of the promise are actually part of the problem. The carriers of the promise, the Abrahamic covenant, through you, I'm going to bless all nations. The very carriers of the promise are actually part of the problem. You're like, you guys are just as bad as everybody else. What is the deal here? I'm losing hope in humanity. I'm losing hope in these people. And the mistake that's often made with the Bible is this. We will grab these characters of the Bible and then we'll say, hey, be like this character. It's a mistake. Because there's always a part of them that you're like, except for there, don't be like them there. And we'll wrench these stories out of their context and then they'll be taught as, here's how to live as a believer in God. And very often, those stories are wrong. I'll give you one example that was taught when I was a kid. It's the example of Gideon. You guys know who Gideon is, right? Not a great guy. He's first discovered hiding in a wine press trying to get a little bit of food for himself. And he's trying to hide it away from the Midianites who are the oppressors of Israel at that point. And this angel shows up and says, hey, mighty man of God. He's like, where? Where's he at? No, it's you, bro, right? And this, this story goes on and there's a part of the story where Gideon is trying to figure out God's will. So what does Gideon do? Throws out the fleece, right? He's like, God, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to fight the Midianites. They got a massive army, 135,000 people. They've got like every weapon you can imagine. So if I'm going to do this tomorrow morning, I want this piece of sheepskin. I want it to be soaking wet and the ground to be dry. So the next morning he goes out there, walks across the Sahara Desert, picks up this fleece and rings out Niagara Falls. He's like, okay. But, but God, that's not enough. Can we do it, but reverse it? I want the ground to be wet and I want the fleece to be dry. So next morning, he's put on his hip waders, wades out there, gets the fleece. It's dry, right? And so that was taught to me as if you're trying to figure out God's word or God's will, you throw out the fleece. Or in our case, you throw out your t-shirt, whatever it's going to be. So there's this idea behind that. But that's that story ripped out of its context. And it's actually the opposite of what's being said there. Because Gideon had already been shown all kinds of miracles by God. The angel had come down. He meets an angel. He goes and cooks some food for this angel. The angel doesn't eat it. What does he do? Fire comes out of this rock, consumes all that, consumes the rock. It's just this miracle after miracle after miracle. Gideon didn't need any more evidence of what he was supposed to do. The throwing out of the fleece was showing, what about Gideon? He is a complete false peak. He's not even close. He has no faith at all. Right? And, and his life actually is plagued by doubt. He even doubts after that, after the fleece thing, he doubts. That sh- it's actually showing that throwing out the fleece is not the way to find out God's will. It's actually showing Gideon had no faith. And yet we pull it out of its context and then we teach it and then we get all kind of mixed up and people are like, why didn't this work? Well, that's not really what that is teaching at all. And if you read the, the Old Testament, what you're seeing is false peak after false peak after false peak, Right? Maybe it's David. David's the dude. Is David the dude? Hmm. He's got that Bathsheba problem and that murder issue and that lying problem, right? Solomon's going to be it. Hmm. 
He's got that idolatry problem and a thousand wives problem, mm, right? You just keep, it's false peak after false peak. And when you read the Bible, you come to this book called Isaiah. And this is why Isaiah is so important because Isaiah realizes all this. And in Isaiah, you keep seeing this. There's this one coming. They're called the five servant songs, suffering servant songs. And they're from Isaiah 41 through Isaiah 53. And over and over it's saying there's this one coming and what we could not do, what Israel has not been able to do, our false peaks have not been able to do, this one's gonna do it. And it gets richer and richer and richer until Isaiah 53 is just unbelievable. The resurrection is in Isaiah 53. It's a fantastic, read it, it's brilliant. In fact, it was so powerful that in the 18th century, when there was a lot of higher criticism against the Bible, you know, it's nothing more than just a man-made book and all this kind of stuff. Isaiah was so good at predicting Jesus that the, the critics of the 18th century said this, nah, it must've been added to. They've shaped Isaiah after Jesus to make it look like Jesus. Well, they believed that until 1948 when there was this discovery in Israel called the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they found it. I saw it when I was in Israel a year and a half ago. I saw the scroll of Isaiah, complete scroll. It's unbelievable. And they found out, no, it's been there all along. That's how powerful it is. So when you read the Bible, it's why I personally believe that what's called biblical theology is a much better way of reading the Bible than the other systems that are out there. Not that they don't have their place, but biblical theology is always putting the story back into its context and saying, wait a second, let's really look at what's happening throughout the whole story because this was not written to pull, extract one story out of it. It was written to look at the whole story. And so you put it back in its context, back where it fits. You put Gideon with his fleece back in the whole story of what's happening and you say, oh my goodness, it's saying something totally different than was actually taught, all right? So in Genesis, this is what we're gonna see. False hope after false hope after false hope. And it's so that you and I become people that say the only hero and the only one that we follow is not David or Moses or Abraham or Paul, as great as they may have been. The only hero of the Bible is Jesus. That's what it's doing. Everything else is a false peak. There's only one true peak and that's Jesus, all right? So with that in mind, these next chapters are gonna get really, really dark. That's what they're gonna do. Really dark. Chapter 34, really dark. We'll do that on Sunday. I'm gonna make it really dark on Sunday because it's showing us that the very carriers of the promise are part of the problem, which if you look at it that way, I don't care who you are, you should have hope because we're the carriers of the promise today. And sometimes we're part of the problem. That's why we get accused of being hypocrites. I say, absolutely right? The church is full of hypocrites. I say, totally. That's why you'll totally fit in. Come join us. So are you, man. You are not doing everything you know you should be doing. Join with us. But our goal is always, we want to keep being transformed and made more like our hero, which is Jesus, no one else. Okay. So chapter 32. Jacob, if you don't remember, he has just left Laban. Laban chased him down. They made this pillar, literally called the pile of rocks. And it was, hey, this is gonna watch. This is our, this is our boundary marker. You don't come across this and I don't come across this. So it kind of, it's, it's the DMZ, right? This is it. 
So they do that. Laban goes home. Jacob goes on his way. He's heading back to the promised land. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And Jacob saw them and he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So I call this the plea. Jacob knows in the back of his mind, I've got Esau to deal with. He had left the promised land with nothing, had to use a stone for a pillow, right? He's coming back. He's a city of his own. Four wives, 12 kids at this point, one daughter, 11 boys. He's an employer. He's got shepherds. He's got flocks. He should be returning to the promised land like a conquering king. I went out empty. I've come home full. That's how he should be going, right? It's like this, I think. I did a wedding a couple years ago up in Portland. And the dad of the groom was a US Air Force general. It's the only general I've ever been able to like sit and talk to for a while. Fascinating guy. His son, Will, who's getting married, the groom, uh, had just graduated from the Air Force Academy and was now an Air Force pilot, marrying a girl who just graduated as a physician's assistant. So just a power couple. So I go up there and I'm just kind of talking to these guys and we're hanging out. And these people were coming and meeting Will now and they hadn't seen him for 10 years or 15 years. They're like, Will, what's happening? Tell me what's happening. He's like, well, I went to Air Force Academy, just graduated, now I'm flying C-130s. They're like, whoa, that is so awesome. I'm a captain in the Air Force. I'm marrying a physician's assistant right there. They're like, yeah, that is awesome, right? Conquering, king. And then I met his younger brother. And so I say, hey, bud, what's, what's your deal? Are you in the Air Force too? He's like, no, I'm a black sheep. I said, what does a black sheep mean? He goes, well, I just graduated from the University of Portland with a psychology degree and I'm going to get my master's this next year. I'm like, so that's what a general's black sheep looks like. <laughs> I know a lot worse black sheep than you, buddy. <laughs> it should be that kind of like, hey, whoa, Jacob, you've been gone 20 years. Wow, look how successful you've been. Look at all that God has done with you. But instead, it's a bummer. You know why? Because he made an enemy. That's why. He had just left an enemy he made named Laban and he was going to meet another enemy he'd made 20 years before that. It's a common denominator, right? If you keep making enemies with people, what's the common denominator? Right? It's me. I'm probably the problem. Jacob, something's up with you, dude. You keep making problems and enemies. If that's your tendency, then you pray, God, change me. God, change me. I don't want to be this way. Jesus in the Beatitudes says, blessed are the peace makers. Not peace keepers. A maker is what? 
someone that creates something that did not exist before. You're making peace in situations where there wasn't peace before. And Jesus said, those kind of people, they're blessed. They inherit the earth. They get it. Blessed are the peacemakers. In our culture today, we need millions of believers to be going out into their neighborhoods and into homes and into relationships being peacemakers because it's kind of riled up right now. And he gets there and what meets him? Verse one, angels. He left and what did he leave? He left seeing angels going up and down at Bethel, the staircase. As he returns, what does he see? Angels that greet him as well. How cool is that? I think there's still angels around. I read a biography a while back, seven years, and it's David Brainerd. If you haven't read David Brainerd about him, he is a fantastic human being. Um, he's actually kind of the inspiration for uh, Jonathan Edwards. He was, they were good friends and he's called the missionary to the Indians. And he's this brilliant dude. And I read him because he has this quote and, it, and the quote struck me. I had it actually written out for a while, printed and on my wall, it said this, God have pity on these people for having to listen to a dead dog such as I. He's a preacher and that's what his quote was. And you would think, oh, he's saying that because he's only preaching to 10 or 20 people. No, he said that after he preached a sermon where 4,500 people traveled days and days to come hear him. Brilliant, brilliant man. Gotta have pity on these people for having to listen to such a dead dog as I. Well, he left that huge thriving ministry. It turns into the great awakening. He left that to go out by himself and become a missionary to these Indians. And he goes to this place where it was known there was this chief who didn't like missionaries, had killed some. So he goes out there, gets to this house that, that one of the dead ones had left, moves in it, is living in it. And finally, he begins to make contact with his chief and gets to know him. And then he asked the chief one time, why didn't you come kill me? He goes, well, I was planning on it. One night I got all my braves together and we came and we crept up to your house. And when we got to your house, we didn't attack you because you had an army and we thought we'd lose, so we left. Well, David Bramer was by himself. What did they see? The angels of God protecting him. There's angels, right? Jacob sees them, there's angels. Wow, now you would think, hey, with angels, I got this thing made. But what does Jacob do in verse four? Did you notice this? I actually slowed down when I read it. Listen to what he says. Thus you shall say to my Lord, Adonai, Esau, thus says your servant, Jacob. Was that the right thing for Jacob to say? Remember, right before they were born, Rebecca went because something was wrong in her belly, like something's going on here, and she prays. And God gave her a prophecy about her two boys. And the prophecy was this, the older shall serve the younger. What does Jacob do right here? He flips it. No, 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 Esau. That's not how it's gonna be, buddy. No, you're my Lord and I'll be your servant. You remember that prophecy? No, I don't believe it either. It's really what Jacob's doing right here. He's going against what he knows to be the truth. Now, why is he doing that? He is afraid. In Job 2, 4, the Satan says this. 
skin for skin, a man will give anything, everything for his life. Jacob is so afraid now, he is going against what he knows to be the prophecy on his life that has been guiding him for so long that caused him to do what he did to Isaac and his brother. He's going against it right here. This is the natural tendency of people, is it not? It's why when you see someone go against this, that we make movies about it. I watched that movie, I'm Not Ashamed, with my family six months ago. Have you seen that? Pretty good. It's a good movie. It's a true story about a school shooting where the girl is, she's, hey, deny God or else. And she won't deny God. And you look at it, you're like, wow, that's amazing. Because it's rare. Jacob doesn't do it. So what we're seeing right now with Jacob is this. He hasn't arrived yet. He's the carrier of the promise, but he's also part of the problem. He's still part of the problem. God has work left to do with him. Jake, come on, buddy. So, verse six. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two groups, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. War, wars coming. What would you do? I always try to like put myself in the story if I'm Jacob, have my wife and my kids. What do you do? My kids will ask these hypothetical questions. Your kids, do you ever do that to you? Dad, what would you do? And Carissa had the best one. She knows I love my Volkswagen van. So she's like, Dad, if there's a fire and you had a choice, either save your Volkswagen van Elijah was like a year old at this time. If you could save your Volkswagen van or Elijah, which one would you save? I'm like, well, that's easy. I'm gonna save Elijah. And then she ups it once. She goes, okay, if there's a fire and you can save your Volkswagen van or Chloe the dog, which one would you save? So I said, Carissa, which one would you save? And I've never answered that question. And I won't answer it. I plead the fifth. It's incriminating. It's like one of those hypotheticals. What would you do? There's a massive army at your doorstep. It's a nuclear bomb is headed for your city. You can't escape it. What are you going to do? Which sadly, perhaps you saw the news for the first time since 1991, our nuclear bombers are on 24-hour alert. Interesting days we live in. So what happens, what do you do? What do you do? Or maybe, remember back to 2013? We had the Harold Camping, remember Harold Camping? Does anybody remember him? Who remembers Harold Camping? Yeah, not very many, that's good. Collectively, Christians have forgot about him, thankfully. He kept predicting the end of the world. So, and then at the same time, it was the, the end of the Mayan calendar, remember that? I don't. I answered so many emails. I just started, I just had this cut and paste email after a while. I just, people, what's well, the end of the world? What's gonna happen in December of 2013? I'd be just cut paste, here you go, 
right? There was all this kind of franticness about it. It actually spread outside of the church and, and got into people because of the Mayan calendar thing. Like maybe they were right. Maybe it's the end of the world. I don't know. And there was this New York Times article I read on it. And it was fascinating because they were asking these people, if it is the end of the world, what would you do? And they had this term, they termed it this. The majority of these people answered this. I would have, they called this apoc- apocalyptical sex. That what I would do, if I knew it was the end, I'm gonna go find some random stranger and I'll go have sex with them. And I thought, that's the most telling thing I've read because what it told me of this, what it told me was this, that's the God of our age. You're gonna worship your God one final time because that's what's most important to you. Amazing. So what do you do? What do you do if this is the end? Here's what Jacob does. He takes all his stuff, kind of divides it in half and puts one chunk over here and one chunk in front. Almost like this right here, I will sacrifice this to save this. The division he makes here is going to affect his family. I'm gonna say all the way down to Rehoboam, his great, 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 grandson when Israel is divided. It's a giant, giant mistake. We'll see, we'll see what he, who he moves out in his favoritism. It's a giant, giant mistake. So as Christians, when we face very pressing situations, here's how I believe we're supposed to respond. It's what has been called, I think rightly so, new covenant Christianity. You stop you pray, you think deeply about what you most want in counsel if possible. If you do those four things, you'll mostly do the right thing. You stop, hold on a second. You pray, Jesus, how am I supposed to go forward? You think about what you most deeply want. Do I wanna have apocalyptical sex? No. I don't want that. And then you get counsel on it and you'll most likely do the right thing. That's what we're supposed to do over and over and over. That that starts to shape the way that you think and you get guided by God that way. Jacob doesn't. He first divides and then he does this right. He prays, but the division he makes before he prays has long implications. So then verse nine, Jacob said, "'O God of my father Abraham,' God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love, it's that word hased, and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, (laughs) he's honest, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Here's a little glimmer of hope. We're seeing in this little section, the transformation of Jacob. 
I call it divine alchemy. You guys know what alchemy is? It was this idea maybe 150, 200 years ago. Some crazy people still have it today. Alchemy is this. It's that you could take base metals like lead, junk, and that you could turn them into gold, right? Well, I don't believe we can do that, but God can. God is taking the base character of this liar, schemer, deceiver, and you're starting to see a little bit of gold coming out of him. It's the same thing Peter would say about us in 1 Peter 1.7, that our faith, which is more precious than gold, it's being tested by fire. Sometimes it takes an Esau with 400 men bearing down on you to get gold. That one of the ingredients for pure gold faith is fire. There is no other way. So he's in the, te- he's testing, but we're starting to see when he heats up, he first schemes and divides, and then at least he prays. And he does four things in this prayer I like. Number one, he's obeyed. It's verse nine. Oh, Yahweh, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. God, I'm obeying you. Now you can look at this obedience cynically that he's saying, really, God, you got me into this trouble. I was good over there. Now you told me to go over here and now Esau is after me with 400 men. God, you, you could look at it that way. Have you ever obeyed God and got into a bad situation? Man, I have. Or you're like, I'm just obeying God. And then you get into like this predicament. The worst was I went to India with my whole family in 2009. Remember that story? It was brutal. The, the trip home from door to door is 48 hours. First plane, my daughter Gabrielle gets uh, chicken pox. Just, they spread over her whole body and she starts just puking, right? Puke on a plane is no fun. Again, on the second plane, I am holding Elijah who's only 16 months old and I just feel this warm sensation on my arm. I'm like, oh no. Head to the bathroom, he has diarrhea and it's all over me. And I have one shirt. I don't have another shirt. So I wore that shirt for the next 46 hours. I'm like, this is awesome. People are like going by me going, oh man, what does that smell? Me, it's me, you're smelling me. So I had to take him into the bathroom. I stripped him down of all of his clothes, threw them away. And I gave him a bath in that little teacup of a, you know? And I'm like pulling off like all the paper towels, like trying to clean him up. I mean, it was just, it was an absolute nightmare. I left that bathroom. It was like paper mache everywhere but not mache, it was something else holding it around. So just gross. So sit down, then Gabrielle or Isabella starts puking and getting chicken pox. I'm like, oh no. And then Carissa starts puking. It just goes on and on. Finally, we get to Portland. You gotta fill out that like, hey, I'm, I'm coming back to the United States. And there's all these questions they ask you. Have you been around livestock? No. Are you carrying any communicable diseases? By faith, no. <laughs> And you you feel it all out? Literally, we're we're there. And we look like death death warmed over. I still smell like diarrhea. So it's just this, there's this odor just coming out of us. I hand the immigration officer the piece of paper and all of our passwords and we're standing there. And he's like looking at us and he's kind of going down like, "Um, are you carrying any uh, cheese? No, I got no cheese. Are you been around livestock? No. Um, Are you carrying any communicable disease? Right when he says that, Gabriel just goes, bah! (laughs) And I was just like, I don't know. What do you think, man? You tell me. He's like, you're fine, go. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm like, God, why is this happening? I thought I was obeying you. You can be obedient and still hit a fire. So Jacob here, maybe he's cynically saying, God, you got me into this mess. But I think he's really saying, I've obeyed you. 
I think prayer should begin with obedience. That if we're not obeying God and we're asking God for new direction, God's just like, I already told you what to do. Obey me. I told you what to do, right? If you're asking God for a job and he's told you, hey, move out of your boyfriend's house, you already know what to do. If you're asking God for a wife and he's already told you, hey, go get help with that pornography problem, he's already told you what to do. Good prayer begins with an obedient heart. I've already obeyed you. I've already obeyed you. And if you look at Proverbs 1, that beginning of wisdom book, it really lays that out. Wisdom is calling, saying, come, learn of me, listen, come to me. And then there's ones that say no. And so in verses 23 and 24, I just read this to my kids. Verses 23 and 24, wisdom says, okay, fine. When calamity hits you, I'll laugh. When you cry out for me, I won't answer because I already did. I already told you what to do and you refused. And now you're on your own. So good prayer, good prayer begins just like Jacob's. I've obeyed you. So help me to know what to do next because I'll obey you again. So number one, it's obedience. Number two, humility. Verse 10, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I had nothing when I crossed the Jordan and now I become two camps. Warren Wiersbe, who good old time Baptist preacher, brilliant. He has this saying that I love and it's this. You're never too small to be used by God, but you can be too big. Humility is one of the ingredients to be used by God. And his humility is actually generated from his gratitude, right? God, thank you for all that you've, ha, huh, I don't deserve all this. One of the best ways I think to humble yourself is to be in continual thanks to God for everything you've got. Because you keep realizing, God, you have been so good to me and it makes you humble. Number two, humility. Number three, petition. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother for I fear him. He, he's not pulling any punches here. The dude scares me. He's like an MMA fighter. I'm not. Please, please help me. There's this weird thing that people have told me before where they say, I don't ever pray for my own needs. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? I never ask God for anything. So I used to like get in debates with them. Now I just say, well, man, start asking for me then. I'll give you my prayer list. And no problem, man. If you're not gonna ask for yourself, start asking for me. But theologically, the Bible says this. Jesus says this, right? Ask, seek, knock. It's Luke chapter 11. James 4 puts it like this. You have not because you, then I'm asking for crying out loud. I'm asking and I'm asking because I believe God is good and generous. And if you're not gonna ask, if you're one of those people, then ask, I'll, I will give you my list. You can start praying for me. No problem. He asks, God, save me from my brother because he scares me. And then lastly, he repeats to God the promise. You said, verse 12, I will surely do you good 
and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Please, God, because you promised. The best prayers end with God's promises. The most firm ground you can ever stand on is a promise of God. So like I was thinking about prayer a couple days ago and it's always like, it's an enigma for me. I'll be honest with you. Cause I tend to be uh, brainy. And if you're brainy, you're always kind of like, Ugh. so I have this compressor and it has this on and off little valve. And there's a little screw that holds the, the lever on to the little valve and it had fallen off into like dirt. And I'm like, oh man, I'm never gonna find that thing. So I looked and looked and looked and looked and looked and looked, couldn't find it. So I'd, I'd given up. And then I had this crazy thought. Guess what that crazy thought was? I'm just gonna pray. And you know, part of me is just like, I've already looked, it's stupid. Why? Okay. I'm like, okay, Jesus, I can't find that screw. That's actually a nut. I can't find the nut. Can you help me find the nut? I went back over there. I'm telling you, in two seconds, I found it. I was just like, hmm, well... Would I have found it anyways? What, you know, it's like this weird thing still in me. Like maybe I would have found it though if I would have looked in that safe. I don't know. Prayer works. Prayer works. And it's the humble that pray. And I'm probably, my problem is my pride. That's probably my problem. The humble, get it. Jacob was brought to a point here where he had to be humble. He had no choice. 400 men with Esau. I'm humble. I'm asking for help. Humble people pray. God, forgive me for my pride. So verse 13, here's what he does. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? And where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with this present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. I just call this the bribe. Anyone have animals? Cows? Goats? Camels? No camels, huh? Can't blame you. I don't think I'd want a camel. So he has this massive amount of animals, 550 animals. And he sends them out. And the reason why it's so big is this group of 400 men would be wanting some booty. After the, after the battle. So he sends out enough where he thinks there's enough animals for each one to have something. So hopefully this will take care of them, right? And it could be that 
He sends them out in kind of five different waves because Jacob is smart. He knows that each wave is going to hit them and they're going to be like, oh, well, we can't take these animals with us. They'll slow us down. So let's leave some men to take care of the animals. And then they move on and then, oh, wave, oh, well, we can't take these animals either. So we'll leave some more men with this one. Oh. And, and so by the time he's going to whittle that army down, he thinks, from 400 to I don't know what, as he leaves men with each one of those animals so that the army can keep moving. So he, he's got his scheming mind going on, right? Was Jacob right to do this? He's prayed. Is he right to do this? Is this a lack of faith? Some people that I read on this said this shows Jacob's lack of faith. Was it a lack of faith? It was an expensive lack of faith if it was. Here's what I think. I think, why would Esau grab 400 men and come meet Jacob? What was his purpose? Why would you rally up 400 men to go out and meet your brother? Freak him out? Because that worked. He definitely did that. I think Esau just may have been coming to battle. He may have been doing that. And by the fact that Jacob sends out these animals, shows something to Esau. Jacob is showing, listen, I know I got the birthright from you, but I don't need it. I'm not coming back to take the birthright. I'm not coming back to take stuff from you, the inheritance. That's not my purpose. I have plenty. I'm not coming to get your stuff. And maybe that was possibly what changed Esau. Hard to know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. I believe in what I call this, the power of P, P, and L. Here's what I mean. Power of P, P, and L. Number one, pray. Number two, get a peace. And number three, labor. I don't believe in the let go and let God. There are certain places, yes, you let go and let God. But for the most part, you pray until you have a peace and then, man, you get working. Maybe God told him somewhere, hey, send a gift. Okay, I'm doing that. You pray to get a peace and then you labor. You go for it. There's this idea that the Christian is passive. No way. We're to be active and involved and moving and going, right? So for instance, if, if um, I did the passive thing on Wednesday night, so I'm like, well, you know, Wednesday night, I, I'm not gonna study, I'm not gonna work, I'm not gonna do any of that. I'm just gonna show up and I'm just gonna open up to Genesis 32 and I'm gonna read it and just hope something good happens. Just let go, let God. How good do you think it would be? I wouldn't come. Me, I wouldn't, I'm not going to that, right? But because I know this, I prayed about Wednesdays. I'm at a peace, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So then I work, I labor. That's what God's word tells me to do. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You pray, you got a piece about what you're supposed to do, and you labor, you go for it with intensity. That's what we were designed to do, PPNL. There's power in that. So I applaud Jacob. Yeah, good move, bud. 
totally. Verse 22, here's how it concludes. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, sons literally, he's got a daughter, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Uh, the Jabbok means emptying, and I've been by it. It looks like a, uh, one of the little teeny irrigation canals. Like these are tiny. Israel is not a land of big rivers. It's, the Jordan River is tiny. Like you can just about jump over the Jordan River. With a good, if you're a good jumper, you could jump the Jordan River, right? It's just this tiny little, it's like the ford of the Jabbok. It sounds like he's like, you know, carrying bags on his, no, they probably hopped over it. So it's not a massive river. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. I just call this the battle. And we looked at this two Sundays ago. Uh, I'll clean up a couple things quickly and we'll be done. Jacob wrestles with this guy all night long. So he believes he's matching him, right? <laughs> Dude, I got you. So when the guy's like the one, I just call him the one, it's, I believe God, the son. You can read Hosea 12. Also just look at verse 30. I've seen God face to face. So he's wrestling with the one and the one says, hey, I'm good. Let's go, let me go. And he's like, no, man, no, you can't do that, right? We're, we're, we're matched up here. You can't just leave. And so the one just goes, tink, unbelievable power. In a moment, Jacob is totally incapacitated, right? And then in my mind, you just see Jacob like holding onto his leg at this point, not wrestling anymore because a hip's out of socket. And he's like, let me go. No, very different this time. I'm not gonna let you go unless you bless me. There's something with you that I need. You ever play this game with your kids? The game of uncle, right? Where you just get them in some kind of submission, say uncle. I play that game, but I never tell them to say uncle. I'm not giving any credit to uncles. I have these sayings. I say, either it'll be like, hey, um, you have to say, dad's the greatest of all time. Or, this is the one I prefer. I love you, dad, and they have to actually kiss my ring. So you gotta get to my ring right over here and kiss my ring, right? So I have a daughter that I have never been able to get her to do that. It does not matter. She is so just, nope. 
I'm not giving up. I will not do that. Even though I am extremely more powerful than her, even though I could subdue her in a moment, even though, you know, on every aspect except for looks, I'm better than her, it doesn't matter. She won't. So I'm like, okay, I don't want to break that spirit. That's awesome. I guess like God right here is like, whoa, okay. All right, buddy. I'll bless you then. I'll bless you. And so what he says then is really, Jacob, you win. You win. And it comes down to first this name thing, like, what's your name? He had been asked that in the same land 20 years before by his dad. And what did he answer? Esau. He lied, pretended to be somebody else. This time, I'm Jacob. I'm heel snatcher. That's who I am. I call this confession. Confession is always the course to change. You admit who you are. This is who I am. This is how I've been for 70 years, however old he is right here. This is who I've been. This is how I've been for 70 years. I have been the heel snatcher. And then instantly the one says, ah, not anymore. Your name shall no longer be heel snatcher, but Israel. And there are more ways to translate Israel, if you look into this, than you can imagine. Wrestled with God, strove with God, prevailer, contender, governed by God, you name it. No one's quite sure. So I always go to context, and I think God gives us the answer. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. I think it's prevailer, or literally, the winner. God called him the winner. You are now the victorious winner. So Jacob hears that. He's like, yeah, I'm a winner. So then Jacob's response is, well, tell me your name. And what does the one say back? Why are you asking my name? Like it's left there. This question, why are you asking my name? And he blessed him. It's like the, the question's never answered. Isn't it kind of weird? It's like a little bit, but you're kind of like, well, what, what, why? Why is that? I have two answers for it. Number one, I think Jacob knew. He knew who it was. Because down in verse 30, he's like, I've wrestled with God. I've seen God face to face rather. And yet my life has been delivered. And number two, I think here's what Jacob was doing again. He was thinking we're equals. I told you my name. Now you tell me your name. We're equals. And he's like, no, that's not how this game is played. Remember the tap? That's not how this game is played, bud. You don't get a demand from me. I'm not in the same game as you. We're different. We're different. And it reminded me of this. Never lose your awe of God. Never lose the awe. Never start thinking of God like an equal, right? Never, ever do that. Over and over, the psalmist says this, come, let us magnify the Lord together. Let's get the bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger picture of him. Let's not narrow him down to a name like prevailer. No, we don't, we don't get him down to a name. He's bigger. He's always bigger. My favorite on this is the book of Romans because Paul sets out in Romans from chapters one through 11 and gives the most detailed, incredible account of the Old Testament, of religion, 
and of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. It's phenomenal. And then in chapter 11, if you know it, the end of chapter 11, what does Paul say? I don't have a clue, right? I'll read it for you. It's so awesome. After he's done all this work, he's like, we've just scratched the surface. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I know I've done all this, but we have just scratched the surface. God is so much bigger. The one that creates everything. The one that spun the planets into their orbits. The one that makes sure that none of them crash into each other. The one that called all the stars by name knows the temperature that they're at right now. Knows the very mitosis in my body down to the very little, little itty bitty thing. Knows the chemicals and the reaction. And he does all this and God doesn't sweat doing it, right? So if you were to ask God, like, hey God, what are you doing? He'd say, holding the universe together. Matt, what are you doing? Well, I don't know, <laughs> not that. Never lose the awe of God. So when Jesus here, God the Son actually, doesn't answer Jacob, he's saying, bud, we're, 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 we're different. We're different. Bud, we're not equals. Don't lose your awe of me. Don't get me down to just a name like prevailer. That's not who I am. So two things to cling to as we go. Number one is this. These are the big takeaways for me in chapter 32. You hold on, period. Be like my daughter that will not let go. You just hold on. In John 6, Jesus says some really hard things. And it says a whole bunch of his disciples just said, dude, we're out. We can't take that anymore. And then Jesus looks at the seven or the 12, excuse me. And he says to them, are you guys going to leave as well? And Peter pipes up and says, no, because you alone had the words of eternal life. Yeah, that was hard what you said. And yeah, we don't really understand that. But you alone have the words of eternal life. We're sticking with you. Ephesians 6 gives this detailed account of the battle we're in, verses 10 through 13, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness, and all this stuff is coming against you. So put on the full armor of God, and you've got all the armor of God on, standing when you've done everything to do to stand, stand. There's no other option. You just hold on, Period. I don't know where you're at today or what this month or week or day has been to you. But I'd say like Jacob, stand, hold on, period. There is no other choice. You alone have the words of eternal life. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm gonna hold on, period. And then number two, I think what you see with Jacob, whose hip is out of socket, he's probably on the ground when this is happening. And God the Son looks at him and says, you prevailer, you winner, is this. A lot of times, winners look like the loser. A lot of times in the Bible, the winners actually look like the losers. God walks away. Jacob limps, dragging his leg behind him, and he's the winner because all this is pointing forward to a day called Good Friday when Jesus would look like the ultimate loser, died at 33, 
He looked like the ultimate loser. But Easter Sunday was coming and there was a resurrection and it changed everything. And when you understand Jesus, what you do then is you look back at the Old Testament and you look back at your life. You look back at the misery ridge and you realize, no, I didn't lose there. That was the fire that was purifying the gold of my faith. And you become thankful for it. It changes everything. That's what Jesus does. He changes everything. So Father, we thank you for the unspeakable gift that you gave to us. I pray that we would learn from men like Jacob and Paul and Peter and Abraham and David and Moses, but we would follow only your son, Jesus. That we would be able to, because of Resurrection Sunday, see the transformation that the fires have had in our life, changing us from base character into gold faith. And I pray for any in here who feel maybe like the dark night of the soul on them where they've been wrestling all night, all week, all month, all year. I pray that your spirit would give them hope to not give up, that they will be victorious because your son has guaranteed that for us, that we are more than conquerors through Christ. That's what we are. So may we have great hope. May we take hope as we look at the flawed people you used to carry out the great promise of redemption, knowing that you can do the same with us. And in the process, you can transform us. So may we go from here this day, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. May we go from here this day, having that hope that's the anchor of our soul. And I pray this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.